Alright, welcome to Mad Dogs and Englishmen. We are back in business. We've been gone for a few days because Charlie was down in Texas raising some money for National Review so we can keep doing this podcast. So for those of you who complained about it not being on, we certainly appreciate uh, your listenership and uh, and like to get it to you as often as possible. But every now and then we've got to go out and... Uh, Cap in hand. Secure the resources to ensure that we uh, continue being able to do this. Uh, if we're going to do a weather report, it's a, another glorious early spring day in New York. The thing I like about this time of the year is that I can sleep with my windows open, which most of the year... I, mean, I was wondering how that sentence was going to finish. <laughs> which most of the year, you uh, you can't, because the summers are full of mosquitoes because we live in a swamp, and the winters are obviously cold. And uh, this is an audio rather than video podcast, but I'm looking out the window at a bunch of guys on one of those window washing rigs across the street and that just looks terrifying it's it just does not, not look not, safe that at all it really does not it? no it's uh it's it looks like that first production of spider-man you know with a couple of wires that don't really seem to be connected much to anything and some rickety scaffolding it looks sort of bad on to more serious business though now i saw this story the other day and i wanted to write about it and i just thought no this is too stupid i just i can't be bothered to write about it but you took one for the team and wrote about it so tell me, what is a crystal ball, and why should I care what a crystal ball thinks about George Orwell? Well, crystal ball is on MSNBC's The Cycle, with other luminaries, such as Toure, mm. and, Christ- and Abby Huntsman, I think. And crystal ball is an amateur literary critic. She really? ran for Congress, also, I think, and lost. She's also famous for having had photographs of her husband with a plastic dildo on his nose at a Christmas party leaked in the middle of her congressional campaign, which didn't help her at all. I see. Anyway, um, that is who she is. That doesn't... Possibly the first time the words plastic dildo have ever been used with anything associated with National Review, but go ahead. Absolutely. Anyhow, she, about a week ago, announced that George Orwell's Animal Farm was a novel about income inequality and about oligarchy and plutocracy and what happens when corporations get too much power. And a week afterwards, having taken a great deal of flack and suffered, rightly, an awful lot of ridicule as well, she has doubled down, to use a phrase I'm not supposed to write, (laughs) uh, on her theory. So today, yesterday rather, uh, you can read it today on National Review, Andrew Johnson put it up, Crystal Ball expounds on the idea that Animal Farm is, in fact, uh, at its root, uh, a critique of of capitalism. Now, in her second... Not not the conventional reading of Animal Farm. Well, no, and in her second criticism, she hedges her bets a little bit. She says at the beginning, I know it's an allegory about the Soviet Union, but really it could be just as easily applied to income inequality, and the pigs could be Mitt Romney. Now... This is wrong for an awful lot of reasons. The first of which is that Animal Farm, like 1984, and indeed like an awful lot of Orwell's writing, is not particularly subtle. He doesn't hide what he's trying to say. He drives at it forcefully. Animal Farm is uh, allegorical in nature, but it's not subtly allegorical. I mean, during... 1944. It was finished in February of 1944, and he couldn't find a publisher because the Soviet Union, which was at the time actually reasonably well thought of in Britain, was fighting alongside Britain and the United States against the Germans. And his very clear criticism of Stalin and of totalitarianism 
uh, not only went against the British intellectual elites and the intellectual and literary classes taste for Stalin and for the Soviet experiment, but went against the war interest. It wasn't as if anybody reading the book or looking through the manuscript was left with anything other than uh, a clear understanding of what it was about. And as if that isn't enough, he wrote to a friend of his, in fact, the woman who translated into French homage to Catalonia, and said this is against Stalin. It's a satire against Stalin. Those are his exact words. He wrote the letter in French, but it's uh, the same in French. Now, this matters for a couple of reasons. Uh, Firstly, because Crystal Ball is not differently interpreting Animal Farm. She's not got a new and interesting take on it. She's just wrong as to what it means. And secondly, because there is so much in his work that had she wanted to make a point about poverty or income inequality, she could have found to do uh, to use. <laughs> but this wouldn't necessarily assume that she had read the works of George Orwell, which right. I'm going to take a wild guess here and say probably not very much of. You know, the thing about Orwell and his lack of subtlety and sometimes having a hard time finding someone to publish his work reminds me of my particular favorite uh, Orwell novel, which is Burmese Days. And uh, when Burmese Days was coming out... Uh, that's the first one, right? So mm, first one. 34, I want to say. So before Animal Farm and before 1984. Yeah. So Burmese Days is a you know portrait of the British Raj in uh, Burma, where I guess Orwell had served as a police officer. The Imperial police officer, yeah. that's right. And uh, it was so uh, unsubtle, and the characters that were based on real people were so lightly fictionalized that they were afraid to publish it in the United Kingdom because the libel laws there. So it was first published in the United States as sort of a uh, trial run, and they waited to see if anything, you know, really bad happened, and then they made some tweaks and republished it in the UK, uh, changing some of the names of the characters so they're less like the people they're uh, supposed to represent. So, you know, something you and I have a little bit of experience with, uh, which is that, man, you know, the world of book publishing just uh, has some problems. They didn't even like like Orwell that much. So, yeah, so uh, Animal Farm as a critique of uh, Mitt Romney... And, and capitalism. Now, something that we often, um, you and I talked about because we talk about Orwell a lot, and we've written about Orwell a lot, which is that there's a lot in Orwell that we agree with and like and endorse, you know, the sort of liberal humane impulses, the anti-totalitarian uh, critique, um, even, you know, the sort of capitalism that Orwell was writing about at the time that he was opposed to was largely things that you and I would be opposed to as well, you know, with a sort of heavy state hand in the economy, uh, sort of semi-formal class system, and uh, and all the rest of that stuff. But it's too much to try to adopt Orwell as one of our own. Is oh, it much not? too much. Yeah, much because, too I much. mean, Orwell still was, uh, at the end of the day, a socialist. He was a socialist, and this is what makes Crystal Ball's uh, analysis, if you can call it that, so irritating to me, because George Orwell hated totalitarianism and was nervous that socialism would become inevitably totalitarianism and in that has a great deal in common with the right insofar as he was one of the only people on the left who called out the Stalinist regime who called out his fellow literary luminaries who called out the British public and frankly, who wrote the book 
on what might happen were central planning to be taken to its extreme. In, insofar as all of those things define the man, he was one of us. But you have to read the whole work. And Orwell was particularly disappointed in the Soviet Union, not just because it was killing people, and because he was a champion of British liberty, at least in the civil libertarian sense that we would understand it, but because it was damning the ideology that he believed in, and that was socialism. And he calls himself a socialist. He's not a secret capitalist. He's not just living in a different era. I mean, he really believed that the stock exchange needed to be abolished, that people were living in grinding, uh, unlovely poverty, which they were. If you read The Road to Wigan Pier, if you read Down and Out in London and Paris. Which you think maybe Crystal Ball should have read one of those. Yeah. Especially maybe Road to Wigan Pier. And so, so Orwell is is obsessed, really, with two things. One is that capitalism is grotty and the life of most people under capitalism will be nasty and brutish and short, as Thomas Hobbes would say. And also that socialism seems to be leading towards totalitarian nightmare states. But his critique of Stalin is that he's doing the same thing and worse as capitalism. Not what mine would be, which is that socialism is inherently, at least now, is inherently dangerous, crushing to the human spirit. And, and Orwell did believe this uh, sometimes, that, that it will always lead to violence. Yeah, well, I think that's a really difference between, you know, big minds and small minds. You know, really very you know, small-minded people, particularly in politics, their view is, okay, I've got it figured out. This is my school. These are my preferences. It's all upside, no downside. The other side is all downside, no upside. And it's obvious, and we should go forward in this way. Whereas Orwell was just simply more worldly and intelligent. And um, honest. And honest man than that. And, you know, the experience of fighting in the Spanish Civil War, the experience of serving as an officer of the Raj, he knew a lot about the world and how it looked and how it worked. And being honest enough to look at the Soviet experiment and and how it actually turned out, he came to a position, I think, where... um, what he believed about capitalism, he still believed. Hmm. And, uh, you know, as you said, he wanted to abolish the stock exchange. It's not something he ever, he ever backed away from. But he also came to believe that his preferred set of preferences might not be workable, uh, that there might be no good, obvious way out of this situation. Yes, and, and, and I think the key point here is not just... I mean, this is a guy, by the way, who, who, who fights for the communists in the Spanish Civil War... I mean, this is a true believer. He, he went from England to do it. So it, it's not just that that his worldview might not work out as he would like and lead to the likes of Stalin, but he worried specifically whether socialism and intellectual liberty were compatible. Yeah, which as, you know, a lot of experience we now have suggests they aren't. Uh, Cuba, North Korea, uh, wherever you like. Uh, one thing, you know, I mean, maybe you know, we conservatives are tempted to uh, to cut Orwell some slack because of all the good stuff in Orwell, but also because of the time in which he was living and writing. Uh, in, in the same sense that um, you know, the people during the the New Deal who were experimenting with various kinds of you know government control of the economy, 
they didn't really have the historical experience of knowing how this stuff was going to turn out. Mm. So I think they were honest experimenters uh, in a sense. I mean, I wouldn't go so far as to say that about the Soviets, but um, certainly a number of the you know social democrats at that time were trying something that hadn't really been discredited the way it has now. Um, you know, some things you just have to do to figure out you know how poorly they're going to turn out. And I think Orwell mostly was writing at that time. So the, the the optimistic part of me wants to say, well, you know, if Orwell had lived another hundred years, he might have might have come around on some things. The other thing about that, and maybe this is a little too uh, philosophy class, but um, if you start looking at the family trees of various modern ideologies, you know it doesn't all break into neat left-right stuff. A lot of what we would have called conservatives believed in the late 19th century, early 20th century is not stuff that you and I believe at all. And a lot of what the left believed, at least certain tendencies in the left at that time, are ideas that have come down to us in some part. You know, in Orwell's time, there was a, a great deal of interaction between uh, socialism and anarchism, uh, between socialism and these sort of anti-state philosophies. And while, you know, we're certainly not, I'm not a Proudhon sort of anarchist, uh, this kind of critique of the state, uh, the critique of its management of the economy in service of various financial and class interests is something that's very much part of of modern libertarian thinking and, and modern conservative thinking, yeah. I think, as well. So, you know, there's some crossover between the uh, between the left and right there. And while I certainly couldn't endorse everything that, uh, you know, a 1922 or 1932 socialist stood for, uh, there are bits of it that certainly make sense. In the same way that, um, you know, a, a conversation we've had a number of times, uh, we remember great people for one or two things about their lives. What we remember Orwell for is his first critique of, of totalitarianism. In the same sense that, you know, there's a lot to admire about Mohandas Gandhi, but, you know, you certainly don't want to adopt his ideas about nutrition or hygiene or economics and a lot of other stuff that he's crazy about. You know, Martin Luther King was right about the one thing we associate him with, which is the status of of African Americans, but his later turn in life toward, you know, being sort of a democratic socialist uh, and that sort of thing, he was simply wrong about. Now, that doesn't mean we have to reject his legacy entirely. And certainly for the you know biographers and specialists, it's important to get a you know a complete read of the person. But I don't think there's anything wrong at all with uh, us on the right citing uh, no. the ideas of people that we you know certainly support to some extent. And you always get this back from people and they say, well, how can you quote Orwell? He was a socialist, and you guys you know wouldn't stand for that. How can you quote Martin Luther King? He was a you know social democrat probably, and uh, and certainly wouldn't have stood for anything you stand for. And that's you know it's absolutely true. Doesn't mean he wasn't right about some things. And Orwell was certainly right about the one thing that we associate with his name. Right. He's not really a man, I think, who can be claimed by any side. If you take a Marxist look at George Orwell you would end up pretty depressed. Mm. I mean, it's not just that Orwell was nervous about the consequences of of socialism, it's why. What we hear from the world's graduate students is that Marxism has never been tried, right. uh, either because individuals are too greedy or selfish or ambitious or ignorant uh, or distracted to implement his ideas properly, uh, or because it's too soon and we haven't yet reached. We never seem to reach the point at which revolution would be viable, but we haven't yet reached it. Now, if you read something like Animal Farm, you could just about come, I don't share this, but you could just about come to the conclusion that it being an allegory of the Soviet experiment, that the farm wasn't ready for revolution. And therefore, you can mirror the Russian 
complaint, which is, well, had it been a revolution, as Marx, in inverted commas, wanted in Britain or in Germany, then it would have turned out differently. And you can say Orwell is merely mirroring there the generic Marxist complaint that this cannot work early on in the development of a country. You can't do that with 1984. I mean, 1984 is set in the future. It's set in an advanced society. It's internationalist in the sense that most of the world's countries in the setting seem to have come down to two or three. And the party, the crushing, ruthless, disastrous authoritarian party, is called Ingsoc, yes. <laughs> which is new speak for English socialism, English socialists. Now, I find that very difficult to square, for example, with a Marxist worldview. It seems to me there's something Burkean here about Orwell. Not Burkean in the sense that he would be inspired by you know, the conservative mind, uh, but con Burkean in the sense that it seems to be that he's wondering aloud whether human nature can ever coexist with revolution and can ever coexist with socialisms being implemented even if he wants it to. And in that regard, that makes Orwell not a conservative, not a Marxist, not a socialist, not a lefty, not a liberal, but a truth teller. Yeah. A guy who effectively wandered around and came to conclusions based on what he saw in some regards, and sorry to Jonah in this, but an actual non-ideologue. Yeah. Oh, what he was really, well, he was a very good reporter. Uh, now, sometimes his reporting uh, ended up being presented as fiction, as in the case of Burmese days and some of his other stuff. But he was a guy with a with an open eye on the world. There's something about Animal Farm, as opposed to the rest of, of Orwell's works, as important as those are, that seems to me sort of special and uh, unique. And I think there's a, a particular weird sort of literary power in, uh, in works that are constructed in the form of a fable you know, with anthropomorphized animals. I, we, we've often talked about my love of the once and future king, which is uh, very much a, you know, sort of political analysis uh, presented in the form of a you know, King Arthur story. And there are a number of other things like that. Even Bastiat, you know, writes some of his, his pieces in the form of uh, sort of these, you know, Aesopic-type uh, fables. There is a particular weird power there, is there not? Well, because it takes it out of our immediate experience and makes and relegates and subjugates the the current era to a, a set of abstract values and that that in in a sense is is sort of a burkean thing to do as well and i've been writing about the madisonian obsession with separation of powers and the mm. founding fathers obsession with separation of powers and it's interesting in that the, the debate over separation of powers at the founding was, was largely one of to what extent they should be separated. And the critics of the American Constitution, unlike in the Progressive Era and unlike now, were those who said this doesn't go far enough in separating them. There's still some overlap. Madison pushes back and he says, no, 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 Montesquieu says the British system's okay and we've gone further than the British system. And the reason I mention that is at no point in his writing does Madison ever say, well, we need our power separated now. We need our power separated in Boston. We need our power separated because these are formerly colonies or because the economy is agrarian 
or because there are this number of people, or because we haven't yet invented electricity. He says we need our power separated because that's how mankind is. Yeah. And by turning the the political truths that we regard as being perennial by turning those into a fable featuring animals and not humans you remove from the equation any sense of of era and time and place and type it's not a black person or a white person it's not a woman or a man it's not a tall person or a russian or or somebody with one leg, or somebody who's been in battle. I mean, yeah, there are some characteristics in Animal Farm, and yeah, there's some description of the characters, especially at the beginning. Was that a subtle critique of Melville in there, a guy with one leg? <laughs> Is that what I'm hearing? The subconscious. Freudian. Yeah. Freudian Melvilleism. Um, <laughs> I don't but, even want to know what that means. <laughs> but no, I, I think that it's... I think that it's it's it does take out of the here and now yeah. the, the rules and allows you to, to forward them without baggage. Yeah, I mean, there's. I, I think that's why these things last. There's a certain kind of timelessness, and that's in there. why he did it. I think as much as anything, instead of just saying, you know, Stolin <laughs> and Lenine and you know Trotsky, you know, there's a reason that that he. I mean, he plays word games. Of course, is Napoleon. Yeah, is both Stalin and Lenin rolled into one, probably, and so on. So we do. We are supposed to know who they are. But the point is, is that that book can be applied now. It can be applied in any country. It can be applied probably in kindergarten, actually, and should be. Yeah, uh, you know, we uh, we we write and talk a lot about education here, and uh, and poor Crystal Ball. But you, know, one of the things that really she's uh, got a name that sounds abstract, doesn't it? Yeah, she, <laughs> is that her real name? Did she change it to some point? Do her parents just hate her? Well, either she was called Crystal, and then she married someone called Ball, or her parents hate her. Okay, I can't. I don't know which one it is, but um, you know, one of the the advantages to having a uh, a real solid core liberal arts curriculum is making sure people read things like Animal Farm mm-hmm. and understand them. Make sure people read things like 1984. I was debating a friend of mine the other day about this. Um, you know, T. S. Eliot when he was teaching. Uh, once remarked that he sometimes he was surprised by the the breadth and depth of what his undergraduate students had read, but he sometimes thought it'd be better if they had read fewer books but had read the same books. Hmm. And I think there's you know something to that. Of course, I always want people to read more books, uh, especially if they're buying them from me. But um, to have a real conversation, yeah, they only need three at the moment, right? Uh, something You've like got that. A full yeah. library. <laughs> so, but to have a real conversation uh, about our culture, about our politics, we have to have a certain shared base of knowledge. And the depressing thing about this whole thing is that, I mean, here's one of the touchstones of the English uh, tradition, the English language tradition, that is being just, you know, wildly and illiterately uh, misconstrued. And so it's it becomes at a certain point difficult, if not impossible, for us to have a real conversation across right. the political spectrum. Uh, you know, there are so many people on the uh, on the other side who just haven't read you know, sort of basic conservative books the way we actually read the liberal books. You know, a couple of years ago, I was very excited by the fact that uh, Dissent Magazine, uh, which is this lefty uh, kind of magazine, did a, a little sort of mini uh, colloquium colloquium on uh, on Hayek, and they'd actually all clearly read it. And I mean, you know, critical things, but interesting things to write about and say about it. And, uh, you know, it's a rare moment where you can actually have an intelligent and a substantive conversation between the two sides based on a shared 
body of knowledge, and uh, we just don't get that as much anymore. And this is you know the annoying thing where um, you hear a lot of stuff you know from the other side about well conservatives believe this for reason X Y and Z that's just you know frankly almost always wrong. Hmm. Um, you know if you take you know Robbie George's case, abortion against, is a perfect one incidentally yeah. where it's because they wish to relegate women to second class citizens. Right. You know Robbie George's case against gay marriage. Uh, whether you agree with it or don't agree with it, isn't because, well, Jesus says so in the Bible, uh, but that's the way it gets uh, treated very often. And, uh, you know, people really probably should read more and read more carefully. Well, and, and these are, are books, Animal Farm in 1984, are books that have changed the way that we think vastly. It amused me recently, I was with a, a friend of mine who's a Democrat, and she's she just reads incessantly, it's great, and... And I was thinking that Orwell would have been in, in some part pleased and in some part horrified. She was explaining The Hunger Games to me before I read it. Hmm. She'd just been Wait reading. a minute, are you telling me you read The Hunger Games? I have read The Hunger Games. What's the matter with you? She read the second one, and she was explaining to me what it was about. We'll come back to this. <laughs> and I read The Da Vinci Code, but I was getting paid for it. I had to review it. The Hunger Games is a much, much better book than The Da Vinci Code. I've read both. But okay. we'll, we'll come back to that. But, and I said to her, well, where is it set? In what sort of context is it set? And she said, oh, it's a communist country. Now, I don't think it is a communist country. It's certainly a totalitarian regime. Mm. And many people on the left have said, well, actually, it's right-wing because of the extreme inequality or because of this distant capital where the people live very well or because of the dog-eat-dog nature but leaving aside the the fight over that the reason I discovered that she thinks it's a communist regime is because it's similar in some regards to 1984 right and 1984 is a criticism of uh, a future communist regime I mean there's no doubting that incidentally Orwell wrote that himself yeah he said it was not an attack on socialism. He was very keen to make that clear, but he said it was an attack on a left-wing, centrally planned socialist country. Now, if you had said to your average member of the literary class in 1945, there's this dystopian novel, it's, it's socialist, they would have looked at you funny. A, because they didn't think that was possible, or they were in denial, and B, because they were all obsessed with the idea that well, whatever tyranny is, is happening is necessary, and that that will soon give way to broad sunlit uplands, as Churchill would say. So 1984 and Animal Farm, for better or for worse, have changed the way in which people see the left, the right, politics, culture. And for Crystal Ball, who is on television every single day discussing politics, not to know what the book says and means is worrying. MSNBC making the world dumber one episode at a time. 